Welcome to this week's SaaS Product Power Breakfast with Dave Kellogg, Thomas Otter and special guest Brett Queener. This is recorded in front of a live studio audience on Clubhouse and then podbeamed. Thanks, Dave. Take it away. Of course, uh, briefly, I should say around 2012. Um, I think we knew each other through other connections as well, but, uh, but I'm super excited to have him on the show. Uh, Brett, Brett was a GM at Siebel and at Salesforce. Uh, he was COO and president of Smart Recruiters. He's now a venture capitalist at uh, Bonfire Ventures. Uh, and on the boards of a bunch of companies, including Aforza, Atrium, Clearton, Cube, Invoca, Lydex, Pendo, Smart Recruiters, and Speckett, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, yep. yep. Okay, so our, our high-level topic today will be the product superpowers that few flex intention and conviction. Uh, and then we've got a number of detailed questions that we hope to go through. I'll be using my blog post as a rough outline for the questioning. Uh, we will be taking questions from the audience pretty much at any time. So if you have one, raise your hand, and either Thomas or I will uh, pull you up on stage, and, and we'd like to hear from you. So, so Brett, uh, talk to me about the title, if you would, The Product Superpowers That Few Flex, Intention and Conviction. What, what are we saying here, and where did this come from? Uh, it, you know, when I, whether I was at Salesforce running products for a while, and we'll talk about that, or if I think about all the companies that I work with, um, there's sort of been a disturbing trend over the last, I don't know, called decade or so with, I see this trend all the time, sort of the rise of the lean startup, continuous releases, um, you know, let's A-B test, experiment everything. Um, and and now, uh, flush amount of capital where, you know, before you weren't so capital constrained where, you, you know, you only had two developers, so you had to be clever. Um, in my mind, it leads all too often to a scenario where the product takes on a life form of its own without strong guidance. Uh, and if I think about, uh, you know, I invested in Pendo, I don't know, close to eight years ago, this idea that product-led or product-first is here to stay. And in my mind uh, today, I can't think of successful startups um, for which this isn't true. Like the product, the people who are using the product sort of need to grok the value and the purpose of that product quickly, you know, it, or they don't. Um, and if it's quickly, they have to, they basically have to deem it like a really important painkiller and not sort of a nice vitamin. And so when I talk to product people, when I think about pro great product people, uh, a word that I use to them is really about what I call protecting the kernel. What is it that makes this product special to the end user? Uh, and I asked them to define very explicitly and intentionally, what is this product and what does it need to be and what's the path forward? And so I'm a big fan of just being very explicit and writing down, look, this is what this product is. This is what we need to maintain or protect around this product. And we need to have conviction about that. If absent that, I think product loses its identity, and you know, which I think leads to much trickier go-to-market. I mean, we're not young chickens, but we've all worked at companies where if the product started to lose its original identity, go-to-market became a lot more complicated, um, et cetera. So for me, when I think about a product superpower, it's like, are you intentional? Are you very clear about what you're doing? And do you have conviction? Are you, real, are you ready to lay down to the tracks and basically say, no, that's not consistent with, you know, the product we're building. Um, and I don't see that a lot. And so it's very interesting when I work with startups and they go from like C to series A to series B and series C, um, really understanding, you know, do we have the right product leadership? Do we give them the right voice? Um, and, and enough wiggle room, if you will, to express that intention and conviction. And it's tricky because most startups usually have a tech founder, right? Uh, they generally, more often than not, probably come from a coding background as, per, as opposed to a pure product. And so they have a very strong opinion around the product. And so if you're the product leader working for that person, you know, you can go kind of one of two ways. You know, you can sort of try to build a product to the whims of that leader, or you can build a relationship where, you're very intentional and you have conviction uh, and you lead with that and you build and gain that respect, you know, from that leader or CEO over time. So that's, that's the topic. That's how I think about intention and conviction. 
Awesome. Awesome. There's a lot to unpack there and uh, we're going to spend the next, uh, whatever it is, 50, 50 minutes unpacking it. Yeah. Um, reminder to the speakers, when we are not speaking, we should go on mute both to protect from background noise and to signal that when we want to speak, we will uh, unmute. And that'll be a, a sign for all of us that Thomas wants to ask a question or I want to ask a question, etc. So um, anyway, uh, thanks for joining us here at the SAS Product Power Breakfast. We're talking to Brett Queener. Uh, about intention and conviction as product superpowers. Uh, Brett, you said PLG, so I'd love you to unpack that. I'm pretty sure most people on this call will know what it is, but I'd love to get your, not just the definition of PLG, but but just some of your thoughts on product-led growth. You're a venture capitalist, after all, now you have to talk about it. (laughs) It's acquired, isn't it? (laughs) Of course, of course. Um, It's, I mean, it's a broad topic. But, you know, I think at the highest level, when I think about PLG, and it, and it doesn't matter if it's a self-serve or freemium or put pricing and packaging aside. Uh, for me, PLG fundamentally means that uh, the buyer is going to make a decision uh, around your product, primarily first and foremost through the interaction with that product. And all the other resources that we normally bring to bear, whether they're clever SDRs, uh, great salespeople, great sales engineers, you know, and whether we've got this amazing sales methodology, Millerheim, and, you know, try to get them in our frame. PLG means that the product uh, means that the product, through the use of the product, um, the buyer sort of builds their own frame, does their own evaluation. And really sort of makes a, a decision around is it something they want to invest in. And so in my mind, sort of the traditional sales pipeline that we're all accustomed with, like top to middle of funnel, the product has to do a lot of the work. And it's sort of in my mind when I talk to sales teams and build out go to market, because a lot of folks are like, okay, Brett, you know about salespeople and SEs and comp plans and ratios. Um and the conversation I have very quickly with them is, is this a product-led growth business or not? And if it's a product-led growth business, in the early days, what we have to think about is the, the people that we would surround that funnel is really in what I call the assisted purchase. We are helping the customer buy the product as they go through it, as opposed to, you know, value selling and coming up with, you know, the right discovery question and, and asking stuff like, hey, what would happen if you didn't buy this product? and all those clever games that we've played over the last 20 years. So that, for me, is the highest level about product-led growth. Uh, and, of course, if that's the case, what's, what's exciting and interesting about it is, is that the role and power of a product leader or a product manager uh, is that much larger. Now, I think the job is that much harder, um, but, you know, it's, it is, you know, who runs product is far more important than who runs sales or who runs marketing or success in a PLG-led uh, business. So um, this will tie into one of our <clears throat> pre- predefined questions, which is in a product-led growth model, uh, does product own growth? Uh, it, I mean, I think it, it, it varies. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, there's this intersection of your traditional folks that are doing demand gen and marketing. Uh, and then you have, if you will, normally you have a product team and then there's a sales team. I think in growth, um, it'll vary by org, but it's usually the intersection of the marketing and product group. Um, and whether <clears throat> product owns growth or not, um, they're very involved with it. You know, I think what's interesting is Dave, if you, if Dave and Thomas, you reflect like 20, 25 years ago, and they're like, okay, we're going to build a roadmap of what the product is, et cetera. I mean, we can pretend it was scientific, uh, but it was a lot of gut. It wasn't a lot of data. Uh, we didn't, we didn't have usage data. We didn't have real time product NPS data. We didn't know like which code people were using or not using, what should be sunsetted. We, we got customer feedback, but not in sort of an interesting uh, mathematical way. Um, and the whole concept of people going through your product and looking at usage and depending on when you monetize and really studying, you know, cohort funnels and the rest of it, we never did any of that. Right. And, and the other reality was 
what we usually did, if you thought about what a product manager was back then, is what, what were we valued on? Releases and launches. And that's why even, you know, famous companies that we work with, often you see like 50 sort of half-finished features. Because what was the point? You, you know, you defined your MVP, but, you know, you were waterfall. You weren't, you weren't agile. You got the feature out. You could launch it, and you moved on to the next thing. Uh, and whether or not, like, it was complicated to the user or the rest of it, look, the customer, you know, they already had bought the product. So I think it's fundamentally different, obviously, now. And so I think it varies by org. Um, you know, I think the interesting question, and so I think marketing in terms of the top of the funnel and, the, you know, if, if there's a sign-up and there's usage um, and then you're tracking usage to conversion points, uh, I think marketing and product are definitely very involved. And whether there's a separate growth team that reports up to marketing or growth, it varies. I think the more interesting question is, and I, I've got a company that I funded that sort of in stealth, uh, it's going to be uh, completely uh, what I call fruitage. It's going to be completely free. Uh, the customer will use it. They'll get some free usage. And at some point, you know, uh, it'll monetize, you know, more akin to a Twilio pricing model. Um, I think the question I ask you guys as well is, so I don't have reps. I don't have SDRs. Uh, but I do have people that as people are in the funnel to guide them through. The product will help. But the economics make sense for, hey, if you want to talk to somebody who's going to answer questions and help you through, use the product, uh, uh, deploy the product, and start you know, to use it whether I'm monetizing or not. I have people. Who do those people work for? And what do you see? Because normally they'd be like, you know, if there was an SDR, a ESE combo, I'd hire a CRO and they would work for that person. But in this mind, if I'm not monetizing until, you know, call it a couple months after they're live and getting real usage, who, you know, who are those people who in my mind are more like Sherpas, who do they work for? And I don't, I don't have the answer to that question. I'm sort of figuring out on my own, you know, um, I don't know, I don't know what, I don't know Thomas and, and Dave or what others have seen about who those people would actually work for, because what I like is when you have a, a leader is, you know, they build up their leadership team. What I try to ask them is, look, here's the 10 fundamental, eight to 10 fundamental questions as a leader you should have the answer to. And as you scale, you know, some leaders on your team should own that. And so what I asked this, the CEO is I said, who on your team is in charge of moving signups to usage? And who are the, and the people that help assist people along the way? Of course, we want the product to do a lot of the work but we're going to throw humans at it because it makes sense to, even if the product is perfect, who do they work for? And I don't, I actually don't know the answer to that question. It's one I'm trying to figure out myself. That's, that's fascinating. Awesome. Uh, Dave, can I jump yeah. in here a second? Brett, I'm, please. Uh, I've been um, racking my brain and to where we knew each other, but your name was very familiar and you mentioned smart recruiters and it all kind of, kind of fell into place. Um, I saw something similar recently. I did a, a due diligence assessment on an SME uh, recruitment vendor. Um, and what blew me away was the ATS itself was relatively straightforward, but the, what really blew me away was the sophistication of the onboarding process um, and the extent to which this this vendor had put um, significant R&D behind really, really making the onboarding process complete, completely slick and, and really, really simple uh, with, um, you know, ongoing guides and support. And, and actually when I did the DD, I stopped halfway through because I didn't want to you know, load a whole lot of data into the into their system, and um, I got a call almost immediately from a from a human being to say, "Hey, I see you're in our system and you're having a problem. You know, can I help you?" And um, you know, coming from enterprise software land, this was just this just blew me away. And um, so I saw this sort of huge level of of sophistication from 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 uh, in the SME space uh, towards this product led, led growth uh, concept. And then I started to think about it in the enterprise level, you know, in the enterprise context. And I saw a whole lot of things that enterprise vendors could do better in onboarding. But the thing that I'm grappling with with product-led growth is that, you know, in enterprise deals, there is this uh, segregation between the user and the buyer. And I've not figured out how to bridge, you know, how to bridge that concept between, between the person who's using the application is not the person that's paying for it or making the making the commercial decision. So how do you bridge that gap between between user and buyer if you're trying in the enterprise to drive a more a more uh, 
product-led um, uh, product-led growth model. That's something that's that I've been, you know, I've been um, uh, grappling a bit. But going back to your question, in this in this startup, the, those people reported to uh, reported into product, um, and the plan was to to build that team out a little bit more over time and 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 call it customer success or and create that as a, you know, as a fundamental separate function. But for the moment, they were reporting into that team was reporting into um, uh, reporting into head of product. Awesome. Yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. Uh, hey, yeah. uh, one sec, guys. Let me get control of the room. Two seconds. Hey, Simon, can you mute for a second? Uh, we brought Simon up on the stage to ask a question, but we're going to let Brett respond to that, and we'll get to you, Simon. Thanks. Sorry, Simon. Dave would let you know I'm not the best active listener, whether on Clubhouse or elsewise. So it was interesting. He originally, when I looked at the P&L, because, you know, it's a seed company, and we're trying to figure out, you know, got $3 million of capital, where it lasts, et cetera. And I was like, why do you have 30 people in success? And then when I dug into it, well, actually, he had lumped in um, the people that would be assisting, if you will, this journey up front uh, in success. And I said, you know, I would label them a separate group. I think uh, they may seem more like success people, but I think there's a group of people that are really becoming experts at guiding people to that point of epiphany when they're using the product. And I think even if they look the same, I think there's a different group of people in the conversations they're having is once somebody's live and going, uh, a different level of support. Uh, but I think what's interesting, Thomas, and yeah, I remember the name as well, because I know, and I know you know Jerome quite well, which is that in this world of PLG, I think, and why you were sort of impressed and surprised by this onboarding is, uh, I think as I think we as consumers of software, I think you're finally, if I think about PLG for 20 years, we're like, oh, why isn't, you know, business software work like consumer software? I mean, we used to pitch that at Salesforce. Um, I think the expectation is if I need help, like, and you need to guide me along with this and the product doesn't allow me to do that on my own, I think you get frustrated. Uh, and so, um, you know, the product and the guides and the recommendations and the onboarding I think it is the new normal, unless you're, you know, an enterprise solution trying to get two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand dollars shots, and you know you're going to build an expensive sales team to go after that. But Simon, please go ahead. You're on mute, Simon. Uh, thanks for coming up on stage, Simon. Uh, what? Uh, yeah, what's your question or uh, comment? Yeah. Good evening. It's Simon Griffiths calling from Johannesburg. Um, uh, just to, to Tom's comment, you know, to comment about, and, and your comment about, you know, where should growth sit, um, and uh, also the onboarding issue. Now, I've, in the last couple of years, and I'm actually working now with a, a, another startup here, so my uh, my exposure, being in South Africa, we don't have the huge startup community that you all have in, uh, for example, in the U.S., but um, they're both sort of, um, they're kind of developer-focused uh, products, uh, startups, um, in both cases, uh, product is not le- uh, sorry. Growth is not led by product; it's led by you know business development or something like that. Because the um, the, the, the the product people are, don't have the business smarts to do it. Uh, that I said that's that's my kind of that that's my, my my experience. And to me, that makes sense. I mean, I've seen you know both both of these 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 cases. The, the, the company was founded by a product guy who really understands a product. But when it comes to, you know, going beyond, it's the old issue. You know, just because you make a great um, uh, mousetrap doesn't mean to say, you know, people will come, uh, will come knocking at your door. Um, so, again, so just repeat that. So, for me, no, growth doesn't sit with product. It usually sits somewhere else, uh, you know, whether it's sales or marketing or, or business development, I don't know. What, what I'm interested to see in that the one at the company I'm now working with is how important onboarding is. Um, just, and that just to, to follow up with what Thomas was saying. Um, and, um, and I've seen it from both cases where you don't have good, good onboarding. It doesn't matter how good your product is the, the, in this, cause I said, they're both kind of technical stuff. So they're not, they're not straight. They are enterprise, but they're aimed at the, at the, at the developer side of the enterprise and they're definitely not consumer. Um, and without that um, that onboarding, and then just talk, according to that, you know, Salesforce. I'm a, I'm I'm a part-time Salesforce administrator, and Salesforce's Trailhead is just the most amazing onboarding um, uh, tool that, that that I've seen. And I keep and I keep telling people, you've got to look at Trailhead. I'm Simon, and I finished speaking. Thanks. Thanks, Simon. 
Brett, you want to take a swing at that? Or uh, Thomas, comments? I think it depends on what type of product team you have. Um, you know, historically, if I think back to when I first started working with software companies, product managers were a lot more inbound. They could build good product, uh, work with dev teams and QA, um, but we're not as bus- we're not expected to like know the customer, <clears throat> know the persona, understand the market, uh, and understand the nuances of of what they had to build and why and what would work. I think that's evolved um, pretty dramatically. Um, you know, there's a question later, David, about what's a world class product manager, but you know, y- you better know what you're building and for who. Um, now, if you're, I think to the onboarding question. If you're if you have a tool for devs, onboarding is really key because devs are incredibly fussy. You know, like if you have a bad onboarding flow or something just seems gacky, they're just they're I mean they're intellectual elites. They're just going to be like fuck this. I'm not going to use this anymore, and they'll just stop. Um, and you know I think it's changed. What's been very interesting building products at Pendo and if you think about Atlassian for developers and the rest of it. If you're selling into a market that doesn't have historical purchasing power and hasn't bought stuff before, where you know there isn't a clear buyer, you have to do a PLG-led model where people are using it. Uh, the money that's being spent is a bit de minimis up until the point it feels like the company's standardizing. Somebody wakes up and goes, oh, I've got a big bill to pay. That's my perspective. Thanks, Brett. Uh, we have another question from the audience, Aiden. I'm going to pull you up in a minute, but uh, let, let me go back to a couple of uh, our in advance questions, and, and then we'll come back around. Uh, welcome, by the way. I'll reset the room. You're at the SaaS Product Power Breakfast, ho- hosted by Thomas Otter and Dave Kellogg. We're here with special guest Brett Queener talking about product superpowers. Brett, there was some, and the room is being recorded. Um, Brett, you touched on something earlier that you know. I, I always think the hardest job in an early phase startup is the first VP of sales. Uh, but I'm increasingly changing that to be it's the first VP of product, particularly with a product-oriented founder. And, and you touched on this earlier with your talk about intentionality and, and building that relationship. But I'd love to drill into that more because I honestly believe the first VP of product at a founder-led company where the founder is a product person is, is very difficult. It's kind of like being CMO of Salesforce, <laughs> right? It's one of those jobs where where are you second fiddle to a founder? And I'd just love to, for you to expound just a bit more on that. And you're still on mute, Brett. I'm on mute, yes. Um, I think, let me, maybe the best way to frame it is, there was a question about what is a world-class product manager leader? And maybe we can talk about that first and then what it's like to work for you know, whether it's Mark Benioff or Todd Olson or Manny, you know, the, you know what I'll call world-class leaders. So in my mind, a world-class product manager, my bar is high. Um, one, they understand the market well in which they're playing. Uh, the personas that religiously they target. It's not like who they're selling this to and who's using the product isn't like the marketing team's exercise to nail. They can help uh, and there's product marketing, but you, you, you need to understand that and the nuances of competitive offerings. Um, I don't think a world-class product manager builds a damn thing without always answering, who is this for? Why does it add value to them? And is this value something that's new that this customer or user doesn't have, or is it sort of catch up to what they're currently using? Uh, A world-class product manager in my mind knows what an MVP is, right? And they don't release crap out of the market. I may be wrong, but I, I hate this. Like, oh, well, you know, we're a lean startup. We'll roll out a piece, and then we'll roll out another piece, and we'll roll out another piece. And I'm all for iterative releases. But in my mind, there has to be a core chunk of capability that's impressive. Um, a world-class product manager is obsessive around UX and quality, right? Like when I get on calls and someone's like, oh, we've got technical debt, or the users are struggling with how to use the product, I get pretty frustrated. Um, I think a world-class product manager spends a third of their time with prospects and customers. Um, uh, in a world that's not PLG, where you know you're selling in person, these people should be great salespeople, and they should stay close to the customers 
because it's very easy to like get out of touch with the pulse of what's working, what's not working. Um, I think a world-class product manager is very clear on their product vision, what it stands for, and they have a clear set of priorities they adhere to. And then lastly, I think they have to inspire the dev team. Uh, this is becoming increasingly important where we have, we didn't have this 20 years ago, we have distributed teams. I mean, we even have, you know, it's one thing to have like a, a fully encapsulated scrum team in Poland and one in the US, but often you'll have divided scrum teams where product and UX might be in one country and devs are in another country, uh, which adds sort of complexity. And, you know, I always, if you, I always want to keep the developers close to the customer problems so they stay connected as well. So, you know, that's what I think a world-class product manager is. And so the reason I put that first is if you're working for, you know, a world-class CEO or a product club founder and you don't bring those things to bear, <clears throat> good luck in my mind. Um, because, you know, Otherwise, you're sort of subjected to sort of the whims of um, the CEO. Uh, and so uh, that's that's sort of my benchmark for what a world-class CEO is, um, a, a product leader. And so when I think about working for a Mark Benioff or uh, any great product leader, um, I think one you have to have a clear set of priorities that you get the CEO to buy into. Um, otherwise, I don't think you'll ever get to build a strong sense of mission-based teams. You know, you know how it works, right? You start out with like three, five, and eight developers. They're kind of one team, two team. Maybe you've got a front-end team, a back-end team. But from a CEO perspective, they all seem fungible. Oh, go do this, go do that. And meanwhile, you're trying to build out an R&D team with product leaders and product marketers on mission-based teams. And if the if the product led CEO is not bought into the priorities and understands we can't move people around, um, you're in trouble. Now, if they come from a dev background, they understand that devs do not like to be moved around. If they come from a product background or, you know, didn't code in their past, this isn't as clear to them. I think the second big thing to understand is that there's nothing more powerful than the soul of a founder. And you want that soul of the founder to emanate through. And so if you run product, okay, your title might be VP of product, head of product, et cetera. But your CEO is the head of product. And you just need to be okay with that. And hopefully the reason you joined that company is because you believe in that CEO and you believe in their vision and mission. And so like getting worried about like, oh, they want to change their mind or this and that, like, you know, that's, you just got to kind of get over that. And so even while I thought I ran product, I think Mark let me knew I ran product, but we all knew sort of who ran product. Um, I think the second thing is you need to give your product leader and CEO, you need to give them a couple big things a year. Even in a product-led growth world, we have iterative design, et cetera. As you move to larger and you want your events and you want your PR, and hopefully your product-led founder is good in an outbound perspective, you need to give them two things a year. And so Dave, you'll remember at Salesforce, which is like, we had to give a big thing at Dreamforce, right? And then probably something, you know, mid-major, you know, six months before that. So we had real momentum that we could inject enthusiasm into the market. Um, I think the other thing when you have a really strong leader, um, and this is, this is second nature to most people, if you're running product, you should go hire amazing product leaders that work for you. Uh, you should hire people that are better than you. And you should make sure that they're ready to interact with the CEOs. But when they are, just get out of the way. Let them go meet with the CEOs. I remember times people like, hey, Chuck or so-and-so met with Mark and you weren't there. And I was like, great. I don't have to be there. That's wonderful. Like, let them go and and, and let those people get connected to the CEO. One, it's great for the people that you hire. It's easier to hire. More importantly, as the org gets larger and larger, if you've got a product like founder, they don't want to be like two or three or four steps removed from where the product decisioning is happening. And you just got to get comfortable with that. Um, I think the other really good way of kind of managing a strong product-led CEO 
is kick off a design review process way before uh, people are writing code, right before stories are committed. Uh, do weekly or biweekly design review with the CEO, bring in some designers, et cetera, review designs uh, with the CEO. Now, unless, uh, I mean, look, if they have a horrible sense of design aesthetic and they're going to fuck it up, I mean, look, you can't do that. Um, but if they do, get them involved early. Because uh, then at the end, if you're building in their mind the design that they approved, you're all good. Um, I think the last thing, and Dave, you have experience with this, you remember the fun offsites, is if you're working for extraordinary, bigger than life, iconic leaders, and look, Mark's a, a pretty, you know, pretty good example of one. I often would tell people to ignore often what they say verbally and listen to how they're feeling. Um, there were many times when people would sort of debate Mark or other similar leaders around the words that the CEO was saying. And in my mind, often the words were sort of gibberish. I mean, they weren't gibberish, but they didn't like logically make sense. But, um, but what they were intuiting or what their gut was, was sort of rarely wrong. And so what I used to do when Mark would want to debate is I would say to him, I hear what you're feeling and give me time to come back and present in words um, and visuals, I think what you are feeling as opposed to debating the words. So that's sort of the advice that I give uh, to product folks. I know there's a lot there. Uh, please feel free to interrupt, but you know, that I think that's how I survived, you know, 12 or 13 years. Yeah. Uh, that's, I love the point about basically getting the gestalt uh, because sometimes I think when people are around these larger than life characters, they kind of get some ways fundamentalist, right? They want to write down everything and follow every word. And, and that's definitely the wrong approach. I don't think the icon wants that either, right? No. <laughs> right, right. The icon wants to be understood, right? Like, like they're just talking. They're, they're not writing on stone. And, and then if everybody goes out, I, I remember the, the business objects one time, like somebody asked the CEO what color he liked. He said blue. And he comes into work a week later and all the walls are painted blue. And it's like, <laughs> it's like well, you said you like blue. Um, yeah. and, and it's, you know, no, that's not what I wanted. I, I, you know, you just asked me what color I liked. So, so I love the point about the gestalt because, uh, you know, you lasted a long time working for both Benioff and, and Siebel, and, and neither of them are particularly easy people to work for. And, and I think you may just have revealed the, uh, the key. Well, it's, I had to do this because I'm no wallflower either. I mean, both of them hired me because I would tell them the truth, right? But then <laughs> – but, but as these companies grew and people were making lots of money, being the only guy that's just being the truth teller – I mean, I wasn't the only guy. But, uh, you know, it's a lonely place to be. Uh, you know, I think there's also – uh, yeah, Dave, you, Dave you, were, you were very much a truth teller as well. But um, – but, I, you know, there's an interesting uh, lesson I give to uh, – look, young is relative now. I'm 51, so young is a, a wide range of people. Um, but when they're giving presentations to CEOs or leadership or board, et cetera, uh, there's two mistakes they make. Uh, one is they spend so much time making sure the content is good that they get up there and it's like a robot and there's no energy. So I tell them first and foremost that people – respond to the energy of your presentation, decide if they like you, and then listen to your content. But if the energy isn't good, the content is irrelevant. So I always tell them, put your presentation together, go through it a couple times, do not memorize anything, and stop. But the second thing is, and I learned this early in my life with Tom, I got better at with Mark, which was my presentations always ended with, you know, I my presentation was super clever, I'd done all the research, here the past, and this was the obvious choice super successful CEO, do you agree or not? What a mistake that was. I basically put the CEO in the position to either say yes and not be able to like put their print on it or no. And you get frustrated because you, look, you don't want to tell everybody no, but you're put in a position where you've got to tell somebody who's done a bunch of work and trying to motivate, no. I always hated that too in my teams. So there's a slight tweak. You get towards the end, you say, look, we've looked at it. Here's a couple options. You know, from my perspective, from a frame, this seems like the right option. What do you think? I'd really like your point of view. It's like adding one more slide. And the dynamic changes dramatically because you let this iconic CEO be an iconic CEO um, as opposed to, you You know, you have the magic answer and they're just going to give you the pat on the back and check. 
And just those two changes dramatically changes what it's like to go work, you know, for somebody like, you know, Mark or Tom. Yeah, I think a couple comments on that, and then uh, we'll we'll go to Simon, who's back up here with another question. I mean, my take on this, Brett, is is that in my opinion, you earned the right to tell the truth, and you did clearly uh, through your some of it through tenure, some of it through, through intelligence, some of the you know just being right a lot. But but I think the mistake some people make is they try to be a truth teller without earning it, uh, and that can get you in trouble. Um, and I had a few thoughts on that. I'd love to hear them, but, but that was, that, that's one important point I think there. And the other one to me, I mean, some of the stuff you've said two things to me that just resonate with kind of, you know, basic salesmanship or salespersonship. I don't know how to, how to turn that word into a good word these days. Salesship, um, sales skill, um, is that basically selling is facilitating a buying process, kind of an outside in definition, whether it's done by a salesperson or by the product. Um, and, and the other one was effectively take your question from closed-ended to open-ended, right? That's what you did. You, instead of somebody, and, and Lord knows you don't want to put an iconic CEO on the spot because uh, they don't like to be nailed down. But by the simple technique of, of just saying, you know, tell me your reaction to this or tell me about how you feel about it, lets them be them and, and it avoids the awkwardness and, and basically the lack of information gathering that comes with a, with a closed-ended question. Uh, any, any thoughts on that riff, Brett, before we go over to Simon? No, I think you're right. I mean, because at the end of the day, you need to understand when you're presenting around stuff, you are selling. You're selling an idea, right? And so I think you, you know, I think you encapsulated perfectly. You, you want somebody to be bought in. You know, what, you, what, what I try to do is buy the CEO into the frame, like how to think about this, and then let them make the decision within that frame, which is not much different than selling, Right. In selling, we're trying to get the buyer within our frame so that they feel like they're making a decision. They don't realize I've got them in the frame where all the possible decisions are all probably okay for me. But, you know, uh, I think you've nailed it. Okay. Thomas, do you have anything before we jump over to Simon? I do. I was, the one thing you mentioned about presentations, and it's, it's kind of been on my mind a bit with that prepare and over-prepare thing. You know? And um, I think there are two ways to do a presentation – you either do it from the heart, right, where you present in a sort of ad lib way and you, you, you fly it based on memory and instinct and whatever, and those can work sometimes. Or you learn the thing absolutely, totally, convincingly off, off, off by heart. And the problem is that with corporate presentations is they're often in the middle. And so, so if you go back to theatre, you know, you learn your lines. And once you've learned your lines, then you start to act. And I find what happens in so many corporate presentations is, is the, the executive, instead of speaking from the heart, is given a script by, um, by product marketing to read. And they read it once or twice and they follow it on the, on the screen reader and the results are turgid. And um, so you either have to learn it and learn it off by heart and make the words yours as, as you do when you learn Shakespeare or you need to speak your own words. But in between is a, is a death zone. One yeah, of the... I, yeah Tom, Thomas, I agree. I mean, for me, whether right or wrong, I think the superpower in work, whether it's software or somewhere else, two superpowers are, look, you need to know your shit, but I think the superpower is authenticity, right? Like, are you authentic in delivering sort of what you're delivering? Uh, and as long as you're authentic and knowledgeable, and if what you're delivering is clear that it's the best, you're doing it because you believe it's the best interest of the company, and not the best interest of you or your group or your division, i.e. it's not political, uh, it's good. I remember a time we did a large couple set of acquisitions, and I, <laughs> and I came to the management team, and I was like, all right, I hate to say this, but we need to lay off like 65% of these folks. Um, uh, these aren't, you know, this is not a going concern, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that didn't go over well. Apparently, I, was I wasn't positive enough and wasn't enough a team player. I mean, th they were all laid off like nine months later. But uh, I think you're right, like Thomas. You should be authentic. Uh, and, and if you're presenting data and the rest of it, uh, you should know it. And what's very interesting, here, here's a magic three words or six words, seven words. If a CEO asks you a question and – some CEOs, Mark and Tom were amazing at, you could put in a presentation together and there was something wrong, like in slide 22 with one number and they would find it. 
They would just find it. And when they would ask you something, so many people would try to defend it. And you would say, you know what? I don't know. I'll get back to you. Good point. Like that is incredibly powerful. I've seen so many presentations get derailed defending product ideas or business ideas with someone trying to defend something that we're clearly, they don't know. And it's perfectly okay to say, I don't know. And I think if you're willing to be vulnerable uh, and, you know, not bullshit it, uh, I think you get, I think you get some kudos and I think you get a second chance to come back. Agree. Uh, two quick comments before we go to you, Simon. So one, Brett and I seem to have a shared skill that we can piss people off by telling them the thing they eventually do. <laughs> so I've done that myself on more than one occasion, Brett. Um, and, and the uh, the other one on the, uh, the, the, the could I get back to you, I, like, I, I think I agree with you, but you can't say it too much, right? Like on, on occasions where I would go to Mark's staff meeting uh, in place of Alex, because Alex was out, I would literally study like a five-page spreadsheet full of numbers because he was relatively infamous in my mind or famous for just like out of the blue going, Dave, what's the service cloud pipeline in France? And in my opinion, if you didn't know the answer to that number, I mean, maybe you could get a pass once in a while and you definitely would not want to bullshit him. But but it was far better if you actually knew the knew the answer, uh, mm-hmm. in my experience. So so yes, if you don't know, don't don't block. Can you just but, ask but, Anna, but, Einstein that, and then it tells you. That's yeah. what I thought that. that was. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you got to know it. Okay. Einstein doesn't speak French. I don't think. I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> I could Simon. I, I, yeah, I I wanted to um, temporarily move us away from the CRM space and into the area that Thomas and I. Uh, kind of went through, which was ERP. I mean, everyone, you know, you, when you talk about Mark and uh, you're talking about Benioff and Tom, you're talking about Tom Siebel. Um, in our space, for my case, it was Ed McVeigh at JD Edwards, but I wondered what um, Thomas's experiences with dealing with Dietmar and Hasso, in other words, Hopp and, and, and Plattner, in terms of that kind of, you know, uh, world class uh, CEO product leaders. Uh, wow. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know Hop very well. I, I met him on a number of occasions and, and at SAP, um, Hop really drove the, the cultural, the culture of the company. That was what his real strength was. That's what he really set up. Um, and Hasso was very much the, the, this is early on, this is sort of ni- early nineties. Hasso was very much the, 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 the idea, idea person. And, um, Hasso had the ability of to set massively big audacious goals, right? And by force of will, he would make you believe in those goals, and um, that was that was tremendously powerful. And that that and 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 um, I think another thing that he was very good at um, uh, was when when confronted with facts, he would he would be okay with changing his mind. And, um, you know, those are two, if you have both of those, I think that's very powerful. So if you can, if you can set a big, hairy, audacious goal, but then um, uh, be a prayer to, to reassess that when, 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 when facts come, uh, that makes you very, very, that makes you very, very strong. And um, I'd say that that, that, were, that were, they were part of his strengths. And, and um, another thing that I think Planner did particularly well is he was both technical and business. So you could, you could debate database design and lose, and you could debate the best way to consolidate a financial statement and lose. Um, and so he had you know, deep understanding of, especially of FICO, of the finance products, and also of of um, of, of of pure of of pure um, uh, technology. But there's that force of will thing that I think is is quite common in in these um, in these um, you know these different leaders. They they. They, you find yourself going along with them without, without really understanding why, but they just somehow through 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 some force of magnetism, magnetism do that. Awesome. It sounds, the, uh, it sounds like the Steve Jobs, you know, um, what was it, the um, uh, reality distortion field? Yeah, something something like that. They, they, they do have that. They, they they are able to those those leaders are able to distort reality to a point because. That's what enables you to drive change. I think it's the, the George Bernard Shaw quote that that you know uh, change requires unreasonable people. 
or something like that. Anyway, back to you, Dave. Awesome. Thank you, Simon. Okay, uh, Brett, let's go back to a couple of the questions that we discussed in advance. Um, and I want to kind of tie two questions together because I think they're related. What do you look for uh, in your current role as venture capitalist? What do you look for as evaluating products for seed, seed stage investments? And, and and I'll combine that with the question, kind of what's a feature and, and, and not a company? Sure. Um, so we are classic seed stage, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's important to define that. Um, so we invest generally, uh, call it five to 10 people at the company. Uh, if it's not PLG, where you may not have revenue, but you're looking at usage stats, uh, if they do have revenue, let's call it at max a couple hundred K in ARR. That's the, you know, and we are investing usually a couple million bucks into a seed round that should get them to, you know, Series A. So north of, call it a million in revenue, you know, call it 20, 25 people, the beginning of a leadership team, et cetera. So uh, we don't have a lot to evaluate, right? There's no, we're not a growth investor doing DCF calculations like, you know, on a P&L. Um, so, I product is super important at the seed stage for me. But the interesting thing is I don't think I spend more than 30 minutes on a product demo. Uh, I think it's, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. Here's what I generally do, uh, what I look for. First thing I try to understand is the founder's background and why they feel they need to solve a given problem. I really kind of need to grok that. We're a relatively involved seed firm. So our last fund we raised last year, we raised a $100 million fund. Uh, we'll do 20 positions. Um, so we're pretty involved. Uh, and we try to compete and win deals because we are more hands-on. So I may do three, maybe four deals. Uh, 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 calling it a deal is wrong. Danny's on you. Like, you called me a deal. Uh, one of my founders is on. But I'll do three or four. <laughs> partnerships, whatever the fuck you want to call it, three to four trans, whatever, three to four investments, 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 <laughs> partnerships, Sorry, investments, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And so, and we're seed. So I'm going to spend the next seven to 10 years with this person. And likewise, you can imagine them with me. So I kind of have to care. Like there are many interesting business ideas, but I'm like, don't care. I remember before Salesforce, I got interviewed to be like the CMO of, VMware, and we're meeting with the team, signing and impressive, but I was like, I just can't get out of bed for server virtualization. It's just, you know, it's not really my jam. Uh, so one, understand the background and why they feel they need to solve this problem. Second thing I ask them is, who is this product for? And in a few words or less, why does the product improve their users' lives in a meaningful way? And I really think about that. Because there's so much capital now. It's so much easier to build software. You know, in every, God forbid, Dave, like, remember 15 years ago, like, the MarTech landscape had, like, 15 vendors and it was crowded. Now there's, like, you know, 4,000, right? And so, like, the idea that you're going to be the only player in a given space, forget it. That's not going to happen. But I really want to understand why is this going to improve the user's life in a meaningful way? And then with that backdrop, walk, have the founder walk me through the product that exists today. Now, if they've got a trial or self-serve or I can just go sign up and discover, I'll do that as well. Um, I then asked the founder, putting money aside, what would they build over the next 6, 12, or 24 months? Um, because that tells me, I get a real sense for, okay, are they connected to this problem? Does this problem really meaningful. Like if someone were to use this product, like, oh, I should try this. This is better. Not only rationally, but emotionally. Does the product that they have today, it's going to be early. It's not going to be super complete. Does it fit that? Uh, and then does their product vision make sense? Like I had an investment that I passed on uh, and we were, we were low bidder uh, because we do a lot of work. I was probably 30, 40% less and the founder wanted to go with us. And in the end, I said, I can't do it. He said, why? I just, I don't believe in your product vision. The founder was building a product for a given problem they thought was interesting. 
Uh, and then what they were, the roadmap was adding all this other bunch of stuff on it where there were going to be a single pane of glass for the user. And I was like, I, it could be right. I just don't care about that. Like, and then the next thing is, tell me the thesis on go to market. Um, which is that they tell me it's going to be product led and it's going to be inbound and it's going to be very low OPEX for sales and marketing. Um, does the product in whatever form it have, have they fit and finish that matches that? Because if they tell me they're going to be product led and I go into the product and it's donkey, like, no, that's not going to work. Uh, and then I talked to three customers and I listened carefully about how they emote about the product. Um, and, you know, if you think about, there are many differences with Siebel or Salesforce or these companies or that companies. But, you know, I think if you think about Salesforce, what's the most original, interesting thing for a company that's worth a couple hundred billion dollars that essentially is a metadata customization layer on top of a rented Oracle database with good APIs and moderately usable applications. I mean, that's what it is now. The reason why Salesforce is Salesforce is that the users were in love with it. The admins became heroes. The admins became powerful. Try to go hire a head of, you know, sales operations or field operations right now in a, in a great startup and give them less than half a point. Like, they created heroes. And those people are religiously connected to Salesforce. And so I'm looking for movements because if you give me a movement and you give me users that are irrational about using a product, Oh my God, it's so much easier to build a company around that. So that's what I, that's, those are sort of the six things that I look for. Um, but I'll tell you, um, I'm learning to be a venture capitalist. I'm probably three years in. I've done investments in the past. Um, I probably know within 20 minutes of talking to a founder if I want to do the deal. And basically, have I fallen in love with this founder and the problems that they're solving? And do I think, the way they're doing it is interesting. And then I use logic to back out. Any deals where I've used logic, David, you and I have been involved with one. Uh, I use logic to convince myself it was a good investment. But emotionally, I was never really into it. Those never work. Um, so that's, that's sort of how I evaluate products. So do you want any follow-up on that before I go into like feature versus a company? No, I was good on that one. I mean, if we have time at the end, I want to come back to, to talking about bright, shiny objects versus the core, because uh, yeah. you touched on that a little bit, and it's a great topic, but but let's go to feature versus company, and then we'll come back unless someone in the audience has a question. Sure. I think this is harder than ever, uh, because, I mean, I was just chuckling. I was talking to Freddie the other day when they launched Okta, right, which was like single sign-on, because Salesforce didn't have it. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, the number of amazing startups where somebody was building something that some scrum team should have built an SAP or Siebel or Oracle, you're like, wow, we can just build that in a year, but you don't. Uh, so look, 10 years ago when Capital's last blush and Uncle Sam and Aunt Tilly weren't talking to you about their Ethereum and Dogecoin appreciation, it was, it was a lot easier, right? Uh, oh my God. You know, look, in the past, what I call a FNAC, a feature not a company, raised a seed and, may, and maybe an A, but never a B or a C, right? Um, and this was the land of private equity this is where we do M&A, right, where we'd get yeah. good teams and the rest of it, and this is where private equity would flourish. Because, you know, Finax, feature not a company's build a feature, usually lacking from the core platform, that in theory a core platform could build enough of a shitty copy that they gave away for free, you know, that it was hard for the Finax to scale. You know, it's not as clear anymore. Right? There's countless number of startups who start out building a very small set of capability that, you know, name the company lacked. Um, who are now worth billions. And so at seed stage, this is something where you have to use gut and intuition. It's kind of hard. Like this idea of like market sizing and is it winner take all? And is this a billion dollar opportunity or a hundred million dollar opportunity? You know, we, we don't invest in B2C. I mean, we have one, we have one uh, crypto uh, infrastructure company that's just going, going bananas. But outside of that, like, this is God's work, right? It takes a while. Um, but, look, I have to believe a company can generate $100 million in ARR within 7 to 10 years. That's generally the thesis that I have to think about. And so, for me, it comes down to what is the problems that the company is solving today? 
And if they solve that, is that a natural launch pad for solving adjacent problems once they are in a company, either for that same user or for new users within that company? Because if so, then the stat, and Dave, you've done, I think you presented at Saster on this, then the stat that matters most for SaaS companies, I mean, other than revenue growth, is NRR, which is net retention. So like, if I can see that if once I'm in with this and it's sticky and people like it, that the spread is natural and it's not unnatural, right? Then, you know, net, net retention can be north of 120, 130%. And so if I believe that to be true, and I believe founders are going to be deliberate about how they moved sort of from act one to act two and act three, I think you have a company, right? But very rarely at seed, you have a company. You have somebody solving a core problem that, you know, something else doesn't solve because they have to start small because it's a small team. Um, so that's, you know, the only converse to this thesis, uh, it's more B2C or what I'll call B2C stuff is, you build a very straightforward product that is super simple to adopt and has some level of virality or a two-sided marketplace effect that you don't need as much go to market. Like think, think Grammarly as an example, right? Like I've, I've been giving Grammarly, I don't know, a bunch of money for years. I don't know if they've given me new features. I'm not sure they're selling to somebody other than me, but you know, it's a utility that serves a very valuable part of my day and they just need to find more people like me. Understood. The uh, the feature not a company riff I, I've heard before, but but I've not heard the the company not a feature riff a la Okta, and I would have made the same mistake. Like, hey, that's a that's a scrub team for a couple quarters. You know, yeah. that's not a company. Oops. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think there was. A... Yeah, yeah. Freddie, Fred, do you want to invest? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think there was a similar, was like a similar a comment when um, when Google bought um, uh, YouTube. You know, one of the product managers who was working on the Google video said, that, "You know, only if you'd given me another Scrum team, I would have been able to build that." Yeah, awesome. no, no, exactly. All right, so we're um, we're down to our last two minutes here. Uh, I don't see anybody in the audience with a question. If you have one, uh, sneak it in now before we're we're done. Uh, Brett, I think I'm just going to give you an open-ended question because uh, I know you did prepare for this. Um, what haven't we covered that you wanted to talk about? Um, what haven't we covered that I want to talk about? Um, you, you fooled me into thinking you'd actually prepared for this. So, uh, I, oh, I thought... <laughs> prepared, prepared, prepared for that question. Look, I... I think what is interesting, and it, it, it's sort of a summary of the conversation, I think it's a super exciting time to be in product. You know, if I think about product managers, like, you know, you remember, like, MBAs wanted to get into tech companies. Well, they didn't sell. They were marketers. So you'd be like a product marketer or a product manager. You kind of learn the craft along the way. Um, you know, you'd feel it. Um, the only problem is you have an MBA where like you have these case studies where you're supposed to be masters in the universe and then you go work for these companies with other, I mean, I think I remember hired 40 Harvard MBAs one year working for Tom Siebel, which was just, you know, the grand irony of that. Um, uh, I think there's never been a better time to be a product leader. Uh, I think it's the hardest job in companies. Uh, you don't actually manage that many people directly, but the level of influence is unbelievably impactful. And I think in the world of product-led growth or product-led, which is a reality, right? Your pro if your product sucks, the company is going nowhere. Uh, and I think, I think, look, why do we work at companies, right? You know, I, my favorite book is, uh, is Drive. We work at companies for uh, a mastery. Can we get better at our craft? We get, we work at companies for autonomy. Uh, so, uh, once we get mastery, give me more autonomy. And we want to have impact. Is what we do impactful to the company? And hopefully, hopefully the company is impactful. If you line those four things up, then there's a reason to go to work because you're incredibly emotionally invested. And I think as a product leader or a product manager, I don't think it's been a better time um, to be able to go do that and be super fired up and I think get the just rewards of you know, being really good at your craft. Awesome. Hey, Brett, thanks for joining us today. I thought that was a great session. Thomas, do you have anything uh, you want to say before we wrap it up? No, I'm just going to press the applause button because I can.
Thanks, Brett. Thanks, right. Thomas. And uh, thanks for joining us, guys. We'll be here next Thursday um, at 8 a.m. for the Power Breakfast, the SaaS Product Power Breakfast. Thanks With again, With Mauri Mazavacheri. So we're going to talk, we're going to talk a whole lot of stuff about, about product detail, product management, how to work with engineering, and a whole bunch of, uh, a little bit more technical stuff next week, but it's going to be fun. All right, team. Thanks. Thanks, Thank everybody. You, thanks, Brett, very thanks, much Thomas. indeed. I'll be shutting down the room in five seconds. Thanks again, everybody.